pray with me, please? Father, thank you for being the perfect father. A perfect father that is our example. One of how to be parents of our children. God, how to be holy and righteous. How to love. I pray that by the power of your spirit and the name of your son that you would come today and you would help. Would you help us? We need it. We need you. We pray this for your glory. Amen. Well, if, if you're anything like me, then sometimes you have to take your car to the mechanic, not only to get it fixed, but first just to figure out what's wrong with it. Or you go to the doctor, or you, maybe you look online, because you have symptoms, and you want not only a treatment, but first you want a diagnosis. Like, what's my problem? What's ailing me? And I hope you come to the Word of God with the same mindset. That you come being willing, more than that, being desirous and expecting for God to not only fix you, but first to tell you your problem. Because you see, in the spiritual world, it's not just that the diagnosis comes before the treatment, but the diagnosis is itself part of the treatment. God changes us and helps us by showing us our problems. So if I may be so bold this morning, allow me to tell you what your problem is today. Your problem is not financial. Your problem is not social. Your problem is not physical or political. Your problem, your chief problem, your biggest problem, because it's mine as well, and it's the problem of everybody in this world, our biggest problem can be said in a very small word, that three-letter word, sin. Now, that might seem overly simplistic. Like, of course, a preacher is going to say that on a Sunday morning in a church. Yeah, that's really our problem, but no. It really is, and I don't think it's simplistic. Sin is our greatest problem. We know this in part because it is the root cause of every other problem. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that sin is simply, that it's bad simply because it brings destruction. Rather, I'm saying the reverse. That sin brings destruction in your life and the lives of others because it is bad. There is something inherently wicked about sin, and therefore it brings problems and pain. So we need to do away with that modern thinking or speaking that says, well, if it's not hurting anybody, then it must be okay. That's utterly naive for two reasons. One, there is no such thing as a sin that doesn't hurt anybody. Sin is always destructive. If you don't feel it or see it immediately, doesn't mean it's not bringing devastation. But secondly, and more fundamentally, when we speak this way of, well, it can't be bad because it feels right to me, and it can't be bad because I'm not hurting anybody else, that is purely thinking of sin in horizontal terms or in psychological terms, when first and foremost, sin is a vertical issue with horizontal results. At the core, sin is about God. It's about us and God. What is sin? We could define it in a number of ways. Let me give you a very simple one. 
Sin is whatever fails to honor God as he deserves. And he deserves all honor. Sin is failing to do that which gives full honor to God that he deserves. We were created to honor God. And sin directly opposes the honor of God. The very reason for your existence, the purpose of your life, the foundation and goal of every relationship and every situation, every circumstance, every decision, every thought, word, and deed you have. The profound spiritual and the utterly practical focus of your life is meant to be for the honor of God, which is the opposite of sinning. Sin, <clears throat> whether it is lying, lusting, or being lazy, whether it's arrogance or abuse or apathy. Whether sin is di being discontent with what God has given you. Or it's doubting what God has promised you. Or it's disobeying what God has commanded. Sin, whether it be selfishness in your home or stealing at work or s stubbornness in your relationships. Whether it's greed, gossip, or gluttony, whether it's perversion, partiality, or pride, whether it be irritability towards your spouse, intoxication with alcohol, insubordination toward your parents, whether sin being the hard-heartedness towards those who are hurting and the lost, whether it's being harsh with your children, or it's hungering for glory that is not yours, sin, all sin is evil and damnable. All of it. Sin is not just a dereliction of our duty to God. It's not just a, a violation of our dignity as image bearers of God. It is also a treasonous act of rebellion against God, and so it justly earns the fiery punishment poured out by God. The reality of sin should never be ignored. The wickedness of sin must not be minimized. And the penalty of sin, it simply cannot be stopped or restrained or diminished in any way whatsoever. All of this and more tells us that even if everything else in our life is going right, like our job is enjoyable and it's bringing in good pay and we get a promotion, whether, you're, uh, whether even if it's that your bodies are fit and healthy, your reputation is admired, your bank accounts are full and growing, your home is peaceful, your marriage is happy. Even if your kids are smart and beautiful and on a trajectory for success, if your friendships are easy and fun, if your charitable work is rewarding and your political party is in charge, and even if your favorite teams are winning, if you are in and under sin, none of it matters. None of it matters. Add to this that all of us sin. That list I said earlier of lying or lusting or disobeying or stubbornness or greed or whatever, that list hits all of us, doesn't it? At least at one point or another. Maybe most of us at all of those points, at least many, we have sinned. And we are constantly being tempted to sin. And then we give in to those temptations and we do sin. And we know, don't we, that we are all capable of more and greater and worse sins than we have yet committed. Sin is our biggest and our most constant problem. And for this, we need help. 
We needed serious help. We need help with our sin because even as saints in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are still sinners. We may not like to hear it. You may have come this morning saying, I wanted a, uh, a happy or a comfortable message, not a message that tells me that I am a sinner. But we need this message. Because the world around us is always telling us that the problem, your problem, is that you lack money. Or that you, you, you don't have yet this adventure. That you're not with the right person. That it's the presence of your sickness or some suffering. They're telling you that your greatest problem is outside of yourself. But I'm here to tell you that's not true. The message the world tells you is that it's everybody else that's the problem. Your boss is not your greatest problem. Neither are your employees or your coworkers. Your spouse is not your biggest problem. Your children or your parents or your siblings, your church members, your pastors, they are not your biggest problem. You are. Because you are a sinner. And you need help. We are all sinners and we simply cannot rid ourselves of ourselves. We cannot rid ourselves of our own sinfulness. No amount of self-help books or techniques or retreats will do the trick. Wretched sinners that we are, oh, who will deliver us from our sin? Thanks be to God, through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Hebrews chapter 2, if you would, grab your Bibles and stand with me in honor of the reading of our sermon text for the day from the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. We read Hebrews 2.16, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. May be seated. The message of <clears throat> this text we just read is simple. I think if we pay attention to it, we will see that it is also profound and wonderful and beautiful, but it is quite simple. And it is this that the superior high priest helps sinners. The superior high priest is Jesus Christ. You see, there have been other high priests, but he is the, the supreme. He is superior to all the others. He is the high priest, and he has come to help sinners. And so if you reject, whether knowingly or not, whether it's in your heart, whether you deny or you recoil at being called a sinner and being reminded of your own sin again and again and again, to the extent that you reject the fact that you are a sinner, to that extent you will also reject Jesus who has come to help sinners. So don't do that. Embrace it. You are a sinner and you need his help. So we read in verse 16 of Hebrews 2, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. In this verse we see that Christ, grace, Christ is gracious to bring commitment and help for sinners. We see Christ's gracious commitment to help sinners. It is a gracious commitment because, well, we don't deserve it. And why don't we deserve it? Because we are sinners. Notice it says, he does not help angels. 
angels. These are the ministering spirits of God, these angelic beings who do his bidding. They sing glory and give praise to God. They are his faithful servants. What does Jesus teach us to pray in the Lord's Prayer? He says, your will be done on earth just as it is done in heaven. That's the standard. The standard is angelic obedience. The the obedience that is rendered by the angels to God in heaven, that's how it ought to be on earth. You see, angels aren't sinners. He hasn't come to help angels. He has come to help the offspring of Abraham. You don't have to read very far in the book of Genesis to find out that Abraham is a sinner. And so are his offspring, Isaac and Ishmael and Jacob and Esau and the sons of Jacob and all the the people that come from these 12 tribes. They are sinners, unworthy, undeserving sinners. So the high priest, the superior high priest, he comes with a gracious commitment to help sinners. And I say it's a commitment because the word in the Greek here for help he uses in verse 16 is a unique word. It's only used in this sense in this verse. It's that he comes to grab hold of, to take hold of sinners. And so it's, it's not that he is he's saying, oh, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll be around, I guess. Maybe you can come find me. Or if you search for me hard enough, maybe if you do well enough, I'll give you, I'll throw you a bone or something. No, he comes and he grabs hold of us. This is great commitment on his part to leave his throne, to come down and take hold of sinners for their good, to help us. If you embrace the fact that you indeed are a sinner and that Jesus is your only hope of help, then know for certain he has grabbed hold of you and he will never let go. He won't let go until he helps you completely, but how does he help us? Verses 17 and 18 tell us how. Look at verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Verse 17, I believe, is saying that the superior high priest helps sinners. How? By delivering them from the penalty of sin. He helps sinners by delivering them from the penalty of their sin. This comes by both necessary incarnation and necessary propitiation. If these words are confusing or foreign to you, that's okay. I'll explain them one at a time. The idea of incarnation is simply that he, the Son of God, came to take upon human flesh. That is, to take humanity, humanness, a human nature upon himself. And I'm saying that this is a necessary thing that Jesus become human, that he take upon a human nature to himself. It's a necessary thing because it is biblically necessary. That is, we see it all throughout the Bible that this is what indeed is the case. Just look at our verses right around our passage and in it. Verse 14, as Pastor Steve taught us about last week. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, which is a euphemism for saying humanity, a human nature. Since they share in that humanness, he, the Son of God, likewise partook of the same things. And Pastor Steve showed us that that we all share in it because that's who we are and what we have, but Jesus had to partake of it. He had to come and take it upon himself. It wasn't his naturally, so he took it upon himself, this humanness. And verse 16, our verse for today says, for connecting us back to what verses 14 and 15 are talking about, the incarnation that Jesus, the Son of God, became human. 
for surely he helps us, not angels. Again, that he, that he grabs hold of us <clears throat> in order to help us the way he wants to help us and the way he takes care of, hold of us requires that he become like us. He doesn't help the angels, so he didn't take upon himself an angelic nature. He takes upon himself a human nature because he comes to help humans. He didn't come to become the archangelos, the archangel, but the archierus, that is, the high priest. That's the word that is used, that he becomes a human so that he can become a human high priest. We see that in verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He had to become like his human brothers, those that he would call, have solidarity with as brothers in every respect, not just kind of like us, not just seeming to be human, but fully human, truly human, so that he might become a high priest. He might become a high priest. He had to become like us in aches and pains and weakness of body. He had to become like, like us in a, a affections and thoughts and motivations and di- desires and burdens of soul. He had to become like us in every respect so that this is biblically necessary. Now it's also logically necessary that he become a faithful high priest. You see, Jesus has not always been high priest. He's always been the Son of God, but he had to become the high priest. In order to become a high priest, he had to become human like us because of what high priests do. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1, and we see the main calling of a high priest. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. If the high priest comes to relate to God, to represent humans to God, therefore he had to become human. In order to faithfully be our helper, our high priest had to represent us before God. Otherwise, he could not take our penalty. Pastor Steve showed us last week the Son of God had to live a truly human life like us so that he could die a truly human death for us. But why? Why why couldn't he? I mean, because every other high priest, they represented the people before God to God and they related to God on on the behalf of people. They did that while they were alive, not when they died. So why did Jesus have to die? Couldn't he just relate to the Father, represent him, uh, us to him in his life? Indeed, he did, but he had to do it supremely in his death. Why did he have to die? Because, you see, he came to deliver us from the penalty of our sin and the penalty of our sin is death. Death only comes because of sin. The sting of death is sin. The wages of sin is death. Not just a physical death, but a truly spiritual and everlasting kind of death. Well, then how could Jesus' death on the cross take the penalty for every sinner who would turn to trust in him? How is that possible? What does it mean that Jesus died to take our penalty, to deliver us from the penalty of our sin? Well, the necessary incarnation also must be, give way to our necessary propitiation. If incarnation is a challenging and maybe foreign word, propitiation probably is more so. What does it mean? Propitiation means that Jesus didn't just die. 
means that he died in the service of God. It says in verse 17, he became a faithful high priest in the service of God. He died as a sacrifice to God, as a substitute in the place of sinners, taking the punishment that God imposed on them. This is propitiation. Here's a longer definition. It is God's holy and just wrath for sin, fully satisfied by being absorbed by Jesus on the cross as the perfect substitutionary representative for sinners like us so that all who turn to trust in him would be reconciled to God forever. Now, I know that's a mouthful, so let's break it down a bit. God is holy. God is just. That should be easy enough. He loves righteousness and he hates sin. That God is holy and just means he therefore must have a perfect hatred for all that is evil. And therefore, his unchangeable character demands that he be committed to pouring out his wrath on sinners for their sin. And so Jesus, the fact that he propitiated, that he appeased, that he satisfied God's wrath for his people simply and wonderfully means that God is no longer angry with his people for their sin because he unleashed all of it on Jesus instead of on them. And in so doing, God's heart is then turned away from them in anger and toward them in mercy. This is how Jesus is the faithful high priest in the service of God because God demands holiness. God deserves glory. God damns sinners to hell for their sin. He must. Because if he doesn't, then he would cease to be perfect. He would cease to be holy and righteous. He would cease to be just. He would cease to be himself. And he cannot do that. But because of Jesus' propitiation, in which God poured out his wrath on Jesus in the place of his people and delivering them from the penalty of their sin, therefore God's name is held high. God's wrath is quenched. God's justice is satisfied. His penalty is paid. God's law has been fulfilled. His holiness vindicated in God's glory has been exalted. That's propitiation. But propitiation is not just about the wrath and justice of God. It's also about the love and the grace of God. One theologian has said that propitiation is born naturally out of the combination of two things. It's when you combine the uncompromising hatred of God for sin and the incomprehensible love of God for sinners. When you marry these two things, you must have propitiation. After all, you see, it was God who sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. It is, it, it is this in the service of God that Jesus bore the wrath of God. He delivered us from the penalty of our sin, and th- God says, this is service to me. This is acceptable and pleasing worship in my sight. I mean, if it were only about God's justice and God's wrath, then to hell all we would go. But... Because of his great mercy and grace, God sent his son to take our wrath that we deserve, our punishment we deserve, our penalty that we deserve for our sin. This is the only way to deal with both sin and this relational conflict between us and God. Jesus propitiated God's just wrath. He satisfied it, helping sinners out of the penalty of their sin, delivering them from it. Why? Because he is faithful in his obedience to his Father, but also 
because he is merciful in his love for his people, sinners though they be. Jesus is the merciful high priest who didn't, he didn't just offer a sacrifice for sin. He offered himself as the sacrifice for sinners. He didn't just provide a propitiation, he became the propitiation. This is our faithful and merciful high priest. And the faithfulness and the mercy of Jesus' high priestly ministry goes beyond delivering sinners from the penalty of their sin. Verse 18 tells us more. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Verse 18 tells us that the superior high priest helps sinners, not only by delivering them from the penalty of their sin, but also delivering them from the power and the pleasure of their sin. Remember, your very existence, the purpose, the supreme purpose for your life, Every moment of every day of your life is to be about the honor of God, to honor Him, which is the opposite of sinning against Him. And so our high priest who lives to do and died for the, in the service of God, he will never be content for us to be merely pardoned and not transformed. He's, he will never be content if we are forgiven but not change to be more like Him, living faithfully to honor God in the service of God. Jesus became like us in every respect except without sin so that we might become like him in every respect, right? Without sin. That's why he came. Our high priest has taken hold of us to help us. And what do we need most help with? Well, surely our biggest problem. And what is our biggest problem? But that we sin and are sinners. So our superior high priest helps sinners by delivering them from the power and the pleasure of sin. Not just the penalty, but the power and the pleasure of it as well. So verse 18 of Hebrews 2 should be read as a very hard rebuke for those who are content to live in their sin. For those who foolishly mistake the grace of God as that being which pardons us but does not empower us to change. That, which, that grace of God that comes to justify us but not to sanctify us. That grace of God that comes to forgive us but not to change us. Those who think that way, they need a hard rebuke from this verse. But this verse should also be a word of healing comfort to those who feel beat down overwhelmed by this weight of shame and guilt and struggle, struggle, struggle against sin and temptation. It's a word of healing comfort because he is able. He is able when he, he who has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted to sin. He's able. And this ability implies willingness. He doesn't just say, oh, I mean, like, theoretically, technically, I'm able. I'm not really going to help you, but I'm able to help you. He's just bragging about his power? No. He's saying, I am able for your good to be what I've come to, to, to uh, be and do what I've come to do. I have taken hold of you so as to help you, and I'm able to do it. Therefore, I am willing to do it. Indeed, I am committed. It's also a hopeful motivation. It's a hopeful motivation for all of us to flee temptation to resist the devil, to crucify our flesh, and to pursue holiness because his ability also implies effectiveness. The ab word ability here is the word for power. 
unmatched, unparalleled, unspeakable power. He is able to bring about the effective change in your heart and life. Not just, not just your position or even your condition, but your very heart and life. He has come to make you holy. He's come to help you to honor God, to live in the service of God. And the strength of your temptations and the weakness of your flesh are no hindrance for Him because He is able. He has power enough to free you, to deliver you from the power and pleasure of sin. He has the ability. Well, what makes him so able? Verse 18 tells us it's his suffering. Because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able. Because he suffered. What does that mean, that he suffered when tempted? It either means that he had suffering in his temptation, that is, through his temptations. Like that the temptations themselves were painful. As John Calvin says, there is a real agony of temptation. Do you know what that means? Have you felt that? That agony of temptation is only known by those who really want to be righteous, but live in a fallen, broken world, know themselves as sinners, and struggle against difficult and heavy temptation. It's painful, isn't it? You don't want to but you do. You struggle, you strive, and it's a painful, agonizing striving. You resist, oh, but it's hard. Jesus knows. He resisted every day of his life. He resisted against temptations to dishonor God, and he resisted it to the full. Never once, never once giving in. He felt the full weight of the agony of temptation in his suffering. But it could also mean here that he suffered when tempted, being that his suffering gave rise to temptation, or his suffering occasioned. They were opportunities for temptation, like when he was in the wilderness, fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, and he was suffering under tiredness, weakness, and hunger, and the devil comes and tempts him. Turn that stone into bread. You know what that's like, don't you? I mean, when you're sick, when you are scared, when you're tired, when you're alone, when you're in pain, temptation is right there. Like there's an excuse to dishonor God. You want to avoid temptation and so you sin, or avoid suffering and so you give in to temptation. You want to get out from underneath your suffering and so you give in to temptation. You want to minimize it. And so you give in to it in every hardship, in every trial, in every struggle, in every aching loss. There is at the heel of every one of that temptation. Don't forget, your biggest problem is not your suffering. It's your sin. Sin is always worse than suffering. When God is testing us, Satan is right there wanting to use that suffering, that testing, as an opportunity to tempt you. That's what he's after. Sure, he hates you and wants you to suffer, but listen, he hates God more. And so his end game is to get you to sin, to rebel against God, to say, you don't have to suffer this way. You don't have to put up with this. His end game is to get you to dishonor 
the Lord. So suffering can be an opportunity for the devil to tempt you. And temptations themselves are a kind of suffering. And Jesus experienced them both to the max. What, the, what was the result of that suffering in and through temptation? He was perfected. Verse 10 tells us of Hebrews 2. We read it a couple weeks ago. That God the Father made the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. What does that mean? It means that, that does it mean that he made Jesus less sinful? Or he made him sinless through suffering? No, of course not, because he already was and always was and will be sinless, holy, and perfect in that sense. The perfection here means more of completeness, that he has been made complete, equipped, fit, and ready to do his job, to fulfill his calling, to be the high priest, the faithful, merciful high priest for sinners, so he can help us. Jesus was perfected. He was equipped, made fit to be our high priest. Jesus encountered every day a constant encounter with temptations and with sinners and with suffering, even to death, death on a cross. As one commentator says, this equipped him, as nothing else could have done, to help ordinary, sinful, suffering men and women like us. Jesus is suffering through temptations like we have it does not cause him to minimize our sin. No, rather, it makes him maximize his efforts of mercy for sinners like us. Jesus knows. He understands. And he has gone through it. He has suffered in the past and is now victorious over that suffering and over that temptation in the present, he is victorious over all sin, over all temptation, over all suffering and all struggling. And so, therefore, he is in the best possible position to offer help to sinners in need. When we face temptations, he is there. What temptations do we face? Well, every sin mentioned earlier, like lying and intoxication and greed and doubting and such and more. In short, we are tempted to sin, to think, to feel, to speak, and to do whatsoever fails to dishonor, uh, fails to, do, to honor God. All of us may be susceptible to most every sin in general, but you know uh, there are some sins in which you are more susceptible in particular. What are yours? What are your most common and biggest areas of weakness and temptation? Is it discontentment? with what God has given you, the lot He has given you in your life? Maybe right now, what you're struggling with? Is it perversion with other people and how you see them and use them and abuse them? Maybe even only in your mind. Is it harshness toward your children? Because they're not doing what you want them to do, what they ought to do. And you see them, not yourself, as the chief of sinners? Is it pride when others confront you and you always say, yeah, what about you? You can't tell me. Is it your controlling and manipulative speech to get your way, your behavior? Is it apathy toward the things of God? Well, you just don't really honor Him as He deserves. 
whatever the temptations that come to you most frequently and most powerfully to steer you away from Christ and so dishonor God, know two things. Know two things. One, you cannot deal with them on your own. You need help. And number two, that because the Lord Jesus has become like us so as to take hold of us for our help, you don't have to deal with it alone. I love 1 Corinthians 10, verses 12 and 13. You can turn there if you want. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Those who are arrogant enough and foolishly self-reliant enough to think that they stand, you will fall. You will fall. You cannot deal with it on your own. You need His help. But I love the second verse too. No temptation has overtaken you except that is common to man. You're not a victim. You're not being picked upon. You're not helpless because God is faithful. He has come to be your help. And He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. In His sovereign care of you and in this world, He will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability as He enables you. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Well, which is it? Does He give us an escape or do we have to endure it? Yes. The way I, I think about it is this, that you're in a battle. And he says, I, I will give you a way to escape so that the sword will not strike you so that you will be able to endure in the battle. You will not be struck down. There will be a way out. And you can endure as the temptations come, wave after wave. Because they will keep coming and you'll be able to endure it because each one he will give you a way to flee and to resist the devil. And when you resist the devil... He will flee from you. That's how He helps us. Can I just say something to you who are struggling right now? Maybe there you, you feel like there's a besetting sin where you just struggle over and over and over again, and it's downright depressing and overwhelming. And you think, I'll never be free from this. You do not have to sin. It may feel like it, but you don't. You do not have to sin. You can honor Him. You can live in the service of God. Because your high priest has taken hold of you to help you. He will help you. Do not give up. Do not give in. He has come to your aid. How does He do so? How does He help us in our temptations? How does our merciful and most faithful high priest Come to us in the midst of temptations to sustain us under the weight of such powerful sin and temptation. And how does He sanctify us from the pleasure of sin so that we no longer love it, but we loathe it? How does He do this work? Many ways, I'm sure. I will give you two from right here. He gives us help by giving us confidence. Confidence to face temptations as those who are no longer condemned under the weight of our own sin. We're free from it. He gives us confidence as we face our temptations that we're no longer not only condemned because of our sin, we're no longer enslaved to it. More than that, 
He gives us confidence that we are those who are reconciled to God. We face every temptation, every sin, even the devil himself with God on our side. Do you see, Jesus has come to be our propitiation, to take God's anger for our sin upon himself so that God is no longer angry with us, but he's for us. And we have the Father's ear. Indeed, we have his heart. So cry to him. Cry to him because he loves you. He is for you. He will help you in any and every circumstance, indefinitely including your temptations. Number two, the high priest has taken hold of us to help us by reminding us of the encouraging, the hopeful, the motivating example of himself. Jesus suffered through temptation more than any of us will ever know because he felt the full weight, the full intensity of the heat of the fires of temptation from the devil himself. None of us have ever resisted every time, every day for our whole lives like Jesus did. He knows it. He knew it. And he not only made it through temptations, he didn't die because he was just overwhelmed by temptation. Like it was too much for him. Nope. He made it through. Through all sorts of trials and temptations to the very end where he gave up his life so that he could be crowned with glory and honor because of it. And so he's called us to follow in his steps, saying that you're going to go through temptations. You're going to go through suffering. You will have a life of agonizing, striving against your own sinful flesh and the world and the devil but you will make it through. You will make it through, and you will also be crowned with glory and honor. Mystery of mysteries, sinners being crowned as saints. What should be our response? What should be our response to the truth that the superior high priest has come to help sinners by delivering them from their sin? That he has come to take our penalty and to deliver us from the power and pleasure of sin? Faith. We must believe. We should trust Him. I think that's what verse 16 is pointing out. You notice it says, He has come not to help angels. He hasn't taken hold of them to help them, but the offspring of Abraham. He doesn't say to the offspring of Adam, which would have pointed to our humanity and our sinfulness, clear enough. He says to the offspring of Abraham, those who are, yes, also human and also sinners, but Abraham was the consummate man of faith. He believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. In Romans 4, it says, those who are the offspring of Abraham are those who have the faith of Abraham, those who believe the promise of God given in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the ones he comes to help, have faith. Faith in our high priest's ability, his willingness, and his commitment because of his incarnation and his mercy and his faithfulness to propitiate God's wrath so that we can go from being condemned sinners in the hands of the angry God to being forgiven sinners and also saints being transformed who are in the hands of our loving Father. Our faith in him should be a faith that rests in the peace that we have with God, a faith that rejoices in the fellowship that we have with God, a faith that counts on the love that God has for us. It's made clear, demonstrated by our high priest, 
who became human so that he could give up his own flesh and blood, his life unto death to deliver us from the penalty of our own sin. Our faith should be one that leads us to cry to him. That's what the word means in verse 18 when it says he has come able to help those. The word is that he's able to come swiftly to the rescue of those who cry to him for help. You won't cry to him unless you have faith that you believe that he will indeed come, that he has taken hold of you to help weak and weary sinners. Our faith should be what causes us to, yes, flee from temptation and to resist the devil, to crucify our flesh and to pursue holiness. Because we believe, we have faith that our superior priest has come to help sinners. He has not come to help those who are perfect and sinless in every way. There are none. He has not come to help the angels. He has come to help sinners. So trust him. Have faith. Trust him and pursue him by faith in prayer and in his word and with the church. Pursue him by faith and then praise him. Have you ever been tempted and then in the midst of your temptation recognize it for what it is and have already been giving in and then stopped? Praise him for that. Because do you think that you stopped all on your own without him helping you? No way. We're sinners. We would just give in. But by his grace and his mercy and his faithfulness, the high priest has come to help you. So praise him. Praise him that you have not gone further into sin than you already have. And then give thanks to him as you confess by faith that your sin is sinful. Lament by faith that there is hope. Recommit to him by faith and then pray to him, cry to him in faith that you believe that he indeed is the faithful and merciful high priest who has come to help sinners. Everyone in this room Everyone, everyone in this world is a sinner. What distinguishes us one from the other? That, well, he is a bigger sinner than she is? No. No, we are all sinners. What distinguishes humanity is that though all are sinners, some believe. Some have faith in Jesus to deliver us from the penalty of our sin and from the power and pleasure of it. And one day when he comes again, Praise his name from the presence of it. So this morning, as we think about our high priest and our faith that we must have in him, how do we pursue that? By the gospel, by the good news. That is, by gospel proclamation, as you hear the word preached, let that stir your faith. By gospel conversations you have with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and even other people who don't believe, have the conversation that Jesus is your helper. You strengthen your faith. It's, in, it's renewed and increased and focused by your daily reading of this word, the word of Christ. And as you witness the lives of other saints who are living gospel, faith-filled lives, you see them growing in the righteousness and fleeing temptation and repenting of sin. And yes, we are also stirred and increased in our faith by gospel symbols like baptism and communion, the Lord's Supper. 
So this morning, if you don't have faith in the Lord Jesus to be increased, if it's not real, if it's not there, then when others come up to partake of communion, please stay where you are. Or you can come and I'll be in front here. And I would love to pray with you and share with you more. Or you can come to one of us afterwards, a pastor or just another Christian. Put it on a connection card or email us that says, I want to know what it means to live by faith in Jesus. But this morning, if you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, if your faith is in Him as your high priest, as your only help, then in just a moment you can exit to your left and come up to one of these tables and tear off or, or grab some communion elements with gluten-free being to your far left. Knowing that these elements represent flesh and blood, humanity, that Jesus himself necessarily took upon himself in order to be our propitiation, in order to free us from the penalty, the power, and the pleasure, and even the presence of sin. And go back to your seat to the right and take it with faith with your peace-filled, joy-filled faith, crying out to Him to help you. And I'll, again, I'll be here in front. And Pastor Steve, if you would be in the back, and if you want us to pray with you about your struggle with sin or about anything else, we would love to be here with you and to pray for you. So whenever you should come, if you want to come and be prayed with and or to take communion, if you should, please come whenever you're ready.